the bedroom window. It allows sunlight to seep through during the mornings and moonlight to soothe at night. In essence, a bedroom window allows you to stay connected to the outside world. However, how many times have you thought about the location of these windows? In some cultures, the location of bedroom windows is essential. Consider the following. It's early morning when you wake up. Lying next to you is your significant other. You smile as you watch them sleep, early sunlight from the window next to them caressing their face. It's both your days off and you can't wait to spend time with them today. But as time goes on and you've gotten up and readied for the day, your significant other is still asleep and in the same exact position when you woke. Worried, you try to wake them by giving them a good shake. Nothing. You also notice that they're cold. Fearing the worst, you call for an ambulance and have them take your love to the hospital. After spending time in the waiting room for hours, the doctor finally comes out and tells you what you've already known, that your significant other is dead. As the initial shock of the news wanes, and you ask the doctor how your love died, the doctor gives you a perplexed look. They tell you that the cause of death is unknown. The only thing the doctor can tell you is that your love's organs were all removed without a single incision made to the body. Unbeknownst to you and everyone else, that night, your bedroom was broken into by a long, slimy, proboscis-like tongue that slithered its way into your love's mouth, began feasting on their organs. I'm Agent Kai, and I've decided to make my reports for Lyles in the form of the podcast. My hope is that you, dear listener, will discover the truth of this world and open your eyes to it. A couple months after the incident that took place in Brazil, I found myself in the Philippines, specifically in the city of Rojas, in the hopes of finding a lead. I had been busy tracking down Sand's whereabouts in vain. Percy Blade, Laos's technology expert too, was having no luck at all finding any hits that matched Sand or the gentleman unknown. Therefore, I decided to pay Gino Reyes, an old friend of mine from a lifetime ago, a visit. As far back as I could remember, Gino had an uncanny ability to find anyone who didn't want to be found. Of course, his methods weren't legal, but then again, neither were Laos's methods. I wasn't alone in Rojas. Accompanying me was Victoria Lakatos. She and I had stayed in touch since our encounter with the Grimad. She had been busy working as many shifts as possible in order to save up for a trip in the near future. When I told her I was going to be in the Philippines for a few days, she was delighted and told me that she was too and if I wanted to spend time together. I told her I would be honored if she joined me. We met up at Rico's Beachview Bar and Grill, where we had some drinks, followed by going for a swim in the ocean. When we weren't drinking or swimming, we were on the beach engaged in heavy discourse on whether Tolstoy's greatest novel was War and Peace or Anna Karenina. Victoria went with the latter, while I went with the former. After having our fill at the beach, and after catching each other up on what we've been up to, of course, I was discreet on my part. Victoria agreed to go with me to see Gino at his house. While on the road, I informed Victoria that Gino was an overall good guy, except he had a wild itch 
that couldn't be scratched unless he was involved in something dangerous. And because of this, Gino got himself into lots of trouble with hackers, police, and white-collar criminals. Of course, I said, this was years ago. It was possible that he had changed and was now a straight shooter. I also informed Victoria that Gino didn't know me as Kai, but rather Nick Nichols. Victoria laughed. <laughs> Is that right? Well, I should probably introduce myself as Madeline Bray. You're more than welcome to, I said. You really are a strange one, she said, smiling. I wonder if I should try and find out your secrets. That could be risky, I said. You may learn things you could never unlearn. Oh, how intriguing. Victoria shot me a curious look. Now I must know. She placed her hand over mine while I shifted up the Audi RSQ8. Kai the Monster Hunter. Monster Hunter? That's what I think you are, she said. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. I laughed. <laughs> Don't laugh, she said, hitting me on the arm. I'm serious. I think that's what you are somehow. And speaking of which, she pulled out her phone and scrolled through it. I came across an article back at the beach that you might find interesting. Do tell. The story Victoria was speaking about covered the bizarre deaths of several people throughout Rojas. According to the Daily Guardian, multiple people were found dead in their homes, their organs gone. While many believed that these people were victims of black market pirates, the evidence pointed to something else. The coroner's report stated that these people did indeed have their organs removed. However, there were no incisions or cuts or marks of any kind. One investigator said that it was almost as if their organs just ate themselves. An eyewitness claimed that they saw a tick-tick flying away from their neighbor's house during the early morning hours. This same eyewitness told reporters that they were sprinkling salt around their house to ward off the Oswong. Of course, the article went on to say, all this talk of the tick-tick was nothing more than just hearsay. There was no real evidence of an Oswong feeding on the residents of Rojas. What is a tick-tick, Victoria said. Sounds bad. A tick-tick, dear listener, is a mythological creature known as the Mononoggle. Vampiric in nature, the Mononoggle enjoys devouring organs, especially the fresh hearts of unborn children. Therefore, their ideal prey is pregnant women. They fly at night, or rather, their upper torso flies at night. You see, the Mononoggle detaches its lower body and hides it, usually around banana trunks, while its upper body flies to its prey's house, intestines flailing in the air. Once there, it then uses its long, proboscis-like tongue to enter the bedroom in any opening of the victim's body, mouth, nose, ears, etc., and devour their organs, or, on a lucky night, the fresh heart of an unborn child. Victoria grimaced. That's disgusting. Is such a thing like that real? Was the grimad real? My god. So there's some kind of visceral sucking creature on the loose? Well, not to my knowledge, I said, but that doesn't mean that it's not. While the article concluded that the bizarre deaths weren't supernatural, and there was a good chance that these deaths could be explained in some other fashion, I had a feeling that wasn't the case. Of course, I kept this to myself. When we arrived at Rojas Airport, 
Gino's chauffeur, Angelo, met us by the entrance. Good afternoon, Mr. Nichols, Angelo said. Mr. Reyes is expecting you and your guest. He has sent me to escort you both to Isla Royale. We followed Angelo out to the airstrip where Gino's private plane was waiting for us. Oh my god, Victoria said. That's a 95 Cessna Caravan Amphibian. Angelo nodded. Yes, you know your planes, madam. I should say so. Victoria ran up to the float plane. I spent most of my young adult life in the air. A bit of an eccentric, Gino Reyes was the kind of person who enjoyed a lavish life and loved to show it off. The fact that he had a million dollar aircraft was nothing compared to the fact that he lived on his own island in a villa that rivaled the most expensive mansions in the world. Isla Royale was located 50 miles northeast of Capri in the middle of the Cibuyan Sea. The only way to reach Gino's villa was either by boat or float plane. There was no runway on his island. It was much too small for that, but he did have a dock. And, of course, taking a boat was much too mundane for someone like Gino. Therefore, a float plane was the preferred means of transportation. It was a short flight from Rojas City to Isla Royale. The view of the bright blue ocean beneath and the clear blue skies above us was beautiful. At one point during the flight, Victoria remarked that, if we had parachutes, we could parachute down onto Isla Royale and how much fun that would be. I told her that while I enjoyed a good adrenaline rush, I wasn't interested in falling off a plane unless I had to. Although, during my Lyos training, I was required to learn how to skydive from 16,000 feet all the way up to 40,000 feet. While I passed that training well enough, I was not a fan of falling through the skies unless completely necessary and rightfully equipped. For the rest of the flight, Victoria and I marveled at the beauty of the sky and ocean. Gino met us at the end of the dock. He was accompanied by two servers who had champagne glasses on a tray with a bottle of Tadinger in a chilled bucket. I'll be damned. Nick Nichols in the flesh, Gino said, smiling. Man, I thought you were dead. Not dead, I said, just hiding from you. Gino laughed. <laughs> ha! You can't hide from me. No one can. He smiled. But you know, I would never look you up, brother. You're my boy. We hugged. Oh, and who have you brought with you? Gino said, eyeing Victoria up and down. My God, Nichols, you've hit the jackpot. He wishes, Victoria retorted. And mind your tongue, my name is Victoria Lakatos, and I like to be referred to by my name and not as an object. I like you already. Gino placed his hand over his heart. But, as much as it pains me to say this to such a beautiful woman such as yourself, my heart is promised to another. Oh no, what a shame, Victoria said dryly. Is that so, Gino? You, the man who said that no woman could ever tame his heart? Gino nodded. Can you believe it? <laughs> oh man, her name is Abigail, the most beautiful creature God has ever chiseled from the tears of angels. She's in Rojas at the moment, but she's coming back soon. You'll both meet her. But first, Gino grabbed the champagne glasses and handed them to us. Let's have a drink with old and new friends to new beginnings. We all drank. Tadinger still your favorite? Gino said. No other champagne in the world comes close. Gino shook his head. I prefer Dom Perignon myself, but we're not here to argue champagnes. 
We're here to celebrate my engagement. Come, let's go to the villa. After giving us the grand tour of his spacious villa, we all took a seat in his massive living room that overlooked the ocean. He had his servers bring more champagne along with a cheese platter. While we ate and drank, Gino informed us that he was getting married in the summer in Aruba and that we were both invited. Once Gino had explained what Abigail had requested for the wedding and how expensive and luxurious everything was going to be, I was finally able to get down to business. I explained to Gino my encounter with Sand and what he had done in Brazil and how he had disappeared without a trace. Gino took a sip of a champagne. I don't know why you work for the CIA, man. You know what I'm saying, Nichols? You're much too good for them. He turned to Victoria. You're not a CIA officer too, are you? God, no, Victoria said. I'm a flight attendant. Thank God. Someone with some sense. Gino turned to me. Nichols, I tell you this with love and respect. Quit that agency and join me. And what is it that you do exactly? I said. Oh, uh, you know. I go around checking various databases and systems to make sure that everything is working properly. And stealing money from these places is what? Gino laughed. <laughs> Just another service I provide. So you're a hacker, Victoria said. Hacker is such a strong term. You know, I prefer tech mage. Gino smirked. Do you two have any idea about the illegal shit Facebook, oh, I'm sorry, Meta and TikTok have on people? He chuckled. <laughs> yeah, I'm the criminal. What about Sand? I said. Can you find him? The sound of a door shutting somewhere from the front echoed throughout the villa, followed by heels clicking against the wooden floor. Gino smiled. If this Sand character was in Brazil like you say, then I will find him. My experience has taught me that the harder people try to vanish from the world, the bigger a footprint they leave behind. I know, it doesn't really make sense, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. He downed his drink. I'll find this sand for you, Nichols. Don't you worry. Just give me a couple days, I'll have the info for you then. The sound of heels clicking against the wooden floor grew louder until a woman in a green Givenchy dress appeared. She had a sun-kissed complexion with long jet black hair and deep brown eyes. Oh, a king Matimisnanhen. Juno stood up and kissed her. Nick Nichols, Victoria Lacantos, this is my fiance, Abigail Garcia. Hello, it's nice to meet you both, Abigail said. Has my soon-to-be husband been annoying you much? Very, Victoria said. Honestly, I don't know how you stand this guy. Abigail laughed. <laughs> With an incredible amount of patience. Oh, that's just cold. Abigail invited Victoria and I to stay for dinner. We accepted. That evening, we ate ilocos empanadas, chicken inasal, and a wide variety of pastries. To drink, we had a bottle of Screaming Eagle Sauvignon Blanc and coffee. Overall, it was a pleasant evening, and it was the last that Victoria and I would have for the remainder of our time in the Philippines. Once we were back in Rojas City, Victoria invited me to her hotel, the San Antonio Resort, for drinks and a swim in the resort's pool. While we floated on the water, I noticed Victoria looking at the multiple scars I had throughout my body. I told her that I had received the scars from multiple job-related incidents. Lyles had many technological advances in medicine to provide its agents. There was a product called SCAR with a slash across the word SCAR 
that helped erase unwanted scars from the body. However, I chose to keep my scars to remind me of the cost of making mistakes in this job. Of course, I didn't tell Victoria this information. Instead, what I told Victoria was that the scars were like rugged memories. Victoria smiled. I wasn't looking at your scars. It's your abs that have my eye. They had my eye at the beach earlier today too. You keep in shape. I laughed. <laughs> so do you. Let's make a toast, Victoria said, raising her glass. To better unrugged memories. We took a swig of our drinks. Then we stared into each other's eyes for a moment before sharing a kiss. But our intimate moment would remain just that. A moment. A scream coming from one of the resort's rooms shattered the night. Then a faint tick-tick sound that gradually became louder was heard. Before anyone could make heads or tails of the screaming and strange sound, someone yelled out that something was moving on the roof of the resort. Kai, look, up there, Victoria said. I turned and looked up to see a creature crawling across the resort's roof. The darkness of night hid it well, but the moonlight betrayed the creature when the moon was free of clouds. It was a medium-built being, with arms and large wings, and a missing lower body. Only the upper torso was present, its entrails hanging loose and being dragged as the creature continued to crawl. It didn't take long for the Mononoggle to realize that it was being watched by all the poolside people. The creature let out a loud, ear-piercing screech before creating a powerful gust with its wings and taking flight into the night sky. As many started running in the direction of the Mononoggle, their phones in hand and filming, I glanced up at the roof once more and noticed a silhouette making their way off of it. My first thought was the gentleman unknown. However, the physical description didn't match. This person was thinner and moved more naturally than my person of interest. Therefore, I couldn't help but wonder if this silhouette was another Lyos agent at work. Victoria grabbed me by my hand. Kai, come with me. We ran over to the room where the Mononoggle's victim lay motionless in her bed. There were people gathered around whispering that the tick-tick killed them both. When I turned my head over to the victim, it immediately became clear what these spectators were speaking about. Next to the dead woman was her husband, crying and pleading with God to return her and their son to life. The dead woman had been pregnant. Doctors would later discover the woman's organs and intestines along with the fetus of her 10-week-old son missing. If there was a Lyos agent working this, I thought, I hope they had a good strategy for taking down the Mononoggle. Judging by the creature's behavior on the roof, it looked frustrated, which meant it was murderous. A Mononoggle is not a creature that should be taken lightly. On the contrary, dear listener, this creature is powerful and will not hesitate to kill. Without a proper strategy or without the knowledge of where the creature kept its lower half, killing it would be next to impossible. Of course, with a well-prepared and sharpened bamboo spear, you could spear the creature through its back, but getting close enough to it, and on its backside nonetheless, was difficult. The following morning, after Victoria had fallen asleep, for she couldn't get any rest throughout the night, I decided to retrace the steps taken by the Mononoggle. I started from the victim's room, then walked around the resort, following the creature's roof crawl. From there, I followed the path the silhouette giving chase would have taken after making their way down from the roof. 
Since the Monanago had flown off in a northern direction, I assumed the silhouette would have done the same thing. Doing this would have taken the pursuer north toward the beach. I walked up and down that stretch of sand until the sun rose above the horizon. Not finding anything, I decided to start heading back toward the resort to grab breakfast for Victoria and myself when I caught sight of a crowd of people gathering by the surf. Washed up ashore was the body of an unidentified man. His body was mutilated from head to torso. The skin of his face was peeled off, his throat ripped open, and his abdomen split apart, organs and intestines hanging out. The only identifiable marker on the body was the large Celtic cross tattoo on the back. I had seen that tattoo before. Shortly after discovering the Mononago's victim last night, I texted Cameron to inform him of the Mononago on the loose. I received his text a few minutes later, saying that he would look into it and see if any agents were dispatched. I walked away when the police arrived on the scene. There was nothing else I could do for the corpse now. It would be taken to the nearest hospital where intelligencers would take care of the body. Cameron called me when I returned to the resort. How's it coming with the search for sand, he said. I told Cameron that my informant was working on it, and that if all went well, I should know something by tomorrow. Sounds good, Kai. Hopefully this informant of yours is the real deal like you say. He paused. I looked into the Mononago business. Lyles did dispatch an agent out there. Agent Lug. I know, I said. I saw him a few minutes ago, or rather his corpse. It washed up ashore. Jesus Christ. The Mononago got him. Cameron typed something on his end. It might take us a while to dispatch another agent out there. I hate to do this to you, Kai, but could you look into it? I know you're busy working on the sand character. Thing is, it doesn't look like there's an agent ranked high enough ready to go after this creature. I told Cameron I would take care of it. Thank you, Kai, he said, typing on his end. It looks like Lug ordered gear for this assignment. I'll send you Lug's information. Maybe he's sent for equipment that can help you in this. Later that afternoon, I told Victoria what had happened and what I was going to do. I did my best to convince her to stay in the resort and wait to hear from me, but she didn't want to do that. She said she felt safer sticking close to me. So what's the plan? She said. Well, I need to go see if Lug has anything useful we can use to stop the Mononago in his place. Okay, where was he staying? Lug was a man who enjoyed luxury. If he was going to stay on an archipelago, he was going to do it on the water. Therefore, I told Victoria that Lug was staying on board a luxury yacht, the 540 Sundancer. However, since he must have used it to chase the Mononago out to sea, the yacht was probably floating somewhere out in the Sabuian Sea. Luckily, thanks to Percy Blade, my phone was synced with the remote navigation system of the 540 Sundancer. Victoria and I made our way over to Flat Rock Beach. It was a beautiful sunny day with calm waters and a gentle breeze. From here, I used the remote navigation to sail the yacht toward our location. Since I couldn't bring the yacht too close to the shoreline, I had to anchor it a few miles out on the open ocean. The only way to get to the yacht was to swim out to it. I told Victoria she could wait on the beach while I swam to the yacht and grabbed the motorized lifeboat it was towing. I would then come back for her. Of course, she refused. What am I? She said. Some kind of fragile princess? 
Forget that. If you're swimming out there, so am I. We swam out and boarded the 540 Sundancer. Victoria collapsed on the exterior couch, cursing under her breath. I crouched over to catch my breath as well for a moment. Then I began to wonder where Lou would have kept his notes. I left Victoria on the couch while I went below deck where the common room and bedrooms were located. Aside from empty whiskey bottles littering the place, there wasn't much to see here. However, the master bedroom did reveal what I was looking for. In one of the nightstand's drawers, tucked underneath some socks and briefs, was Lou's notebook. Every Lyle's agent, dear listener, must carry with them a hardcover notebook at all times. This notebook is used to write down notes on assignment progression and for reference later on when writing field reports. While writing things down in a notebook may sound old school, it was also the best way to keep prying eyes out, especially those of the digital variety. But in the rare case that the notebook was lost and fell into the wrong hands, each agent wrote in the notebook using their own shorthand. According to Lug's notebook, he was using the legend Finnegan Wake, a clear reference to James Joyce's novel Finnegan's Wake, quite possibly one, if not the, hardest novels in the existence of literature. And just as I feared, Lug's shorthand was based on passages from Joyce's novel and parts of H. Ryder Haggard's novel, She. I flipped through Lug's notes and came across three that were circled several times over. The first note read, She is H.C.E.'s River Run. The second, She-Wolf Hindfeet is in the Tropic of Prideland. And the third, She, Out of Time, Landing Lips, Loves H.C.E.? I was sure I would be able to decipher the first two shorthand notes, but that third one was going to be difficult. Aside from the word she, the rest of the third note had nothing to do with Joyce's or Haggard's novel. I was sure of that. When I returned to the main deck, Victoria handed me a glass of champagne. Looks like this guy Lou was getting ready to celebrate big time, Victoria said. This guy had a bottle of Taste of Diamonds. Luke always did enjoy the most expensive things he could get his hands on. Cheers. We both took a sip of our glasses. What's that? I explained to Victoria my dilemma with Luke's notebook. Let me see. Victoria read through the notes and thought for a moment. Well, I have no damn clue what the first two notes mean, but this third one looks familiar. Sort of. Out of time and landing lips. That's flight attendant slang. Is that so? Come, I show. I took a seat next to Victoria on the couch. She used the pen that was hanging from the notebook's side and began writing. Out of time means that a flight attendant has reached their maximum ceiling, meaning that they can no longer fly for that month. She wrote this down underneath that term. And landing lips means that a flight attendant will freshen themselves up, like reapplying the lipstick, to say farewell to the passengers. Is that what you do? I said. Victoria smiled. I don't need to do that. I always look damn good. She returned her attention to the notebook. The rest, I'm lost. It took a few hours to decipher Lou's shorthand. Luckily, he kept a copy of Finnegan's Wake in his bedroom. Using the book and with Victoria's help in locating specific pages, we finally cracked the code. The first shorthand note, She is HCE's River Run, was easy to figure out after skimming and recalling Joyce's novel. The she in this sentence stood for the Mononogle, and the H-C-E 
was a man who had a close relation to the River Run. You see, dear listener, the she here is a reference to Haggard's novel She, where the she is a creature named Aisha. The H-C-E are the initials of one of Finnegan Wake's characters, Humphrey Chipton Earwicker, and the River Run in that same novel represents H-C-E's wife, Anna Livia Plorabelle, or the River Woman, which is what River Run implies. When translated, Lug's note reads, The Mononago is the wife of H-C-E. That's the one part that was still a mystery. Who was H-C-E? The second shorthand note, She-Wolf Hindfeet is in the Tropic of Pryland. Using the same method as before gave us the following. The Mononago's lower body was on the private island. And the final shorthand note, She. Out of time, Landing Lips loves H-C-E? Thanks to Victoria's knowledge, this message read, The Mononago freshens itself up when its time in the night is up. Does the Mononago love HCE? With this third note deciphered, it didn't take long to figure out who HCE was. I pulled out my phone and called Gino. When he picked up, I asked him how the information on San was coming along. He said good. That he had a lead and was close to zeroing in on San's whereabouts. I then asked if he had a minute. He did. Therefore, I told him that I had a confession to make. Victoria and I had been dating for quite some time now, and she was pregnant with my child, 12 weeks in. Gino congratulated me, and then yelled at me for allowing Victoria to drink alcohol while she was with child. I told Gino I didn't know until just now. He then said I had to return to his place with Victoria so he could have his doctor look and see if any damage was done to the baby. I said we would go over later in the evening. They had borrowed the yacht from a friend and would take that to Isla Royale. What the hell, Kai? Victoria said after I hung up. What was that? The Mononago. It's Abigail, Gino's fiance. Victoria looked at me, wide-eyed. What? She is HCE's river run, I said. Abigail is Gino's wife-to-be. Wait, I'm lost. How is this Monon... How is Abigail this creature? The Mononago, dear listener is an eccentric creature. During the day, on average, the Mononago takes the form of a woman. This woman is like any other woman on this planet. She has a job, friends, lovers, and even husbands or wives. She can even start a family. However, if this woman has another family member who has been stricken by a darkling or dark chick and has had the darkling transferred over to her, then the woman is doomed. You see, the darkling living inside this woman is what transforms the woman into the human flesh-craving beast that has become known as the Mononago. In theory, if an afflicted woman gets married and has a child, specifically a girl, the woman, or rather the darkling, will wait until its host, the woman's body, is too weak to feed in order to transfer to its new host, the daughter. When this happens, the woman will sneak into the daughter's room during the night and get on top of her. The woman will then open the child's mouth and theirs at the same time. The darkling, that has been living inside the woman's stomach and has devoured the woman's entrails, will slither out of the woman's mouth and enter the child's mouth and begin the process anew. The woman, having no insides, dies. Oh, that is gross, Victoria said. I can't believe it, Abigail. But she seems so normal. They always do. Okay. What do we do now? We prepare, I said. We're going to need a few things. 
I paused. Listen, I could use your help, but you must understand that what I do is extremely dangerous. Agent Lug was one of the best in my profession, and now he's dead. There's no shame in walking away. Victoria smiled and kissed me. I'm not going anywhere. It was a quarter past nine when we arrived at Gino's place. I docked the 540 Sundancer aft first. Lug had made some alterations to the yacht that would come in handy later that night. Gino and Abigail led us to the spacious living room once more. There, they gave us a stern talking to. Afterwards, we had a late dinner with zero alcohol for Victoria. It was during dessert and coffee that Angelo came into the living room to inform us that the dock had arrived. The dock, a thin man with a patchy beard, asked Victoria to follow him into the next room. Victoria gave me a slight nod before following the dock. Before our arrival, I gave Victoria a small bottle of Fantase to use on the dock after he found her to be without a child. I then told her to give him the suggestion that everything was fine with the pregnancy. Victoria must have listened well because when they returned to the living room, the dock said just that, followed by running to the bathroom to vomit. I'll be damned, Gino said. You're a lucky woman, Victoria. He examined her. And how is it that you're not showing? That's common, honey, Abigail said. Some women don't show until their third or fourth trimester. What the hell were you thinking? Victoria lowered her head and shrugged. I, I wasn't thinking. I didn't want the baby at first. I, I'm so sorry, Nick. Hey, it's okay, I said, holding Victoria in my arms. The important thing is that the baby's fine. Gino rubbed his eyes. Look, Ooh, it's getting late. Why don't you two spend the night here? Really? I said. We'd appreciate that. Yeah, man. I'll tell Angela to get the guests room ready. Abigail walked up to Victoria. We all make mistakes in life. The important thing is to learn from them and move on. She smiled. You have life in you now. Don't let that go to waste. And with that, we all said our good nights and went to bed a half hour after midnight. Victoria and I feigned sleep that night and waited. It wasn't until three in the morning that our ghastly visitor made itself known. The night was a humid one, and we had left the window open to let the cool breeze into the room. And it was through this window that the Mononago's long, proboscis-like tongue slithered inside. We waited until that slimy organ was inches from Victoria to use the daggers we found inside Luke's yacht. With a quick swing, our daggers sliced through the tongue. This caused the Mononago to roar something fierce. The creature flapped its wings and took flight. It told Victoria to start looking for the Mononago's lower body and move it while I went out and distracted it. I crawled out the window and started climbing down using the thick vines that had grown on the side of the villa. However, before I reached the ground, the Mononago did a flyby and I could see that it was going to use its razor-sharp claws to slice me in half. Fortunately, I saw it coming and jumped out of its way just in time. I hit the ground hard. The wind was knocked out of me for a few seconds. When I was able to catch my breath, the Mononago had turned around and was diving straight for me. Groaning, I got up and started running as fast as I could toward the yacht, but I had misunderestimated the Mononago's speed. 
The creature came flying fast, scooping me up off the ground. It dug its claws into my sides. I screamed in agony as the creature rose higher into the night sky. The villa and Isla Royale were now below me. While I struggled through the pain, I pulled out a set of daggers from my boots that I had acquired from the yacht. Using all my strength, I sunk those blades into the Mononago and started twisting. The creature roared and dived toward the ocean. The Mononago dipped me into the sea several times before shooting back up into the night air and letting me go. I hit the water hard. It felt like I got hit by a truck. But my training kicked in and my mind began taking control of my body, allowing me to focus on swimming back to Isla Royale. Whether it was luck or fate, the Mononago had dropped me half a mile away from Gino's island. The lights of the yacht acted as my lighthouse. When I made my way back to the island a few minutes later, I was relieved to see the Mononago hovering over the villa. Whatever Victoria was doing, she was doing a good job because the creature couldn't locate her. As for me, I wasn't doing too well. I managed to get out of the water, but my sides were bleeding. The Mononago had done a good number on me. Therefore, I managed to get myself to the yacht. There were bandages and ointments that I used. Once I had patched myself up, I grabbed a flare gun and ran toward the villa. I made sure to stay in direct sight of the yacht with my back to the villa. Then I shot a flare into the night sky. This attracted the attention of the Mononago. When the creature saw that I was still alive, it roared and started for me. I wanted to wait until Victoria found the creature's lower half and moved it, but there was a good chance that doing this would end up with me dead. There was no hope of me keeping the Mononago distracted until sunrise, especially in my current condition. And that was assuming Victoria had found Abigail's lower body and hid it. No, there was only one choice I had now to take down the Mononago the hard way. So, I took out my phone and waited until the Mononago was flying toward me. It was incredible how fast this mythical creature could move. I pressed my back against the villa and readied my phone. With a quick tap of my finger, the spear shooter opened on the after deck of the yacht and loaded the sharpened bamboo spears. Another tap of my finger unleashed a bamboo spear that shot through the Mononago's back and pinned it to the villa. All the commotion had grabbed the attention of everyone on the island. Soon, I was joined by Victoria, Gino, and Angelo. The four of us stood in silence as we watched the Mononago take its last breath. Then, we watched as her upper body slowly reverted back into the form of Abigail. The darkling that had taken over her being crawled out of her mouth and died on the ground next to her. In the days that followed, the incident that took place on Isla Royale was covered up by Gino. He admitted that he knew something strange was going on with Abigail, but he preferred to believe that everything was alright. Abigail hadn't caused any harm to him or to those close to him, so there was no need to worry. In the days leading up to Abigail's death, Gino did confess that something odd was happening to her. She was withdrawn, almost like her humanity was being taken away more and more with each day that passed. She was also leaving the island earlier than usual at night and returning at the brink of daylight. Denial, Gino said, was a hell of a thing. Victoria looked throughout the entire villa for Abigail's lower body without result. A search conducted after the Mononago expired and the sun had risen 
found Abigail's lower body lying on an indented corner on the roof of the villa. The darkling that had possessed Abigail was no fool. They strategically chose this one spot because of how the shadows made it next to impossible to see anything at night in that spot. Once things had settled down a few days later, and a funeral service was held for Abigail Garcia on the island, Gino pulled this agent aside and said, I found the information you've requested. According to my search and contacts, this San was in Australia for some time, but now it seems like he's heading for Canada. For what it's worth, Nick, be careful. There's something not right with this sand. Just looking at his image through my monitors gives me a bad feeling. I thanked Gino and promised him I would be careful. Victoria and I spent an additional few days together on the yacht as we sailed toward Taiwan. Victoria's vacation days had run out and she was scheduled to return to work. She was to join her cabin crew at Taoyuan International Airport and depart to Spain. Therefore, we decided, what better way to get to Taiwan than to sail there on a luxury yacht? This agent must admit that spending time with Victoria was wonderful, especially those additional days on the 540 Sundancer. Not only did she help this agent recover from injury, but she also gave this agent much-needed light in an otherwise dark world. Those intimate moments of passion this agent shared with Victoria on those days reminded this agent that despite all the atrocities in the world, moments of beauty still existed. Agent Luke was identified by local Capri coroner as Finnegan Wake, a yachtsman. Cause of death, shark attack. Of course, all this information was released by local intelligencers. Victoria and this agent made plans to meet up again as soon as schedules permitted. Until then, this agent was Canada-bound. Human nature is a difficult thing to understand. Many philosophers and writers have written extensively on this subject to no avail. While great insight has been provided by these daring innovators of humanity, not much has been learned in terms of straight answers. The human being is still as complex today as yesterday. Plato once said, All good and evil, whether in the body or in human nature, originates in the soul and overflows from thence as from the head into the eyes. He believed wholeheartedly in the soul and believed that all human complexity originated from here. And if one believes in what Plato said, then one has to wonder what would happen to a soul that was invaded by a malignant force. Abigail Garcia was a regular woman doing her best to survive in the chaos that is this world. But somewhere along the line, she was infected by a malignant force that fed on her soul. Physically, the Mononago, or the Darkling, situated itself in Abigail's stomach and began to feed on her organs and intestines and, like a parasite, became Abigail's only connection to the living world, therefore taking control of her. Spiritually, however, what if there was something else located in the stomach or in the body in general? Perhaps a soul, an energy source that powers humanity, a source that can be corrupted and turned from something wonderful into something horrible. Like a virus infecting a healthy person, a demon takes control of a healthy person in the same way, from within. 
Perhaps there is something to the soul, something harmonious that beats in the hearts of all humanity. But every now and then, and with more frequency with each passing day it seems, this harmony is disrupted by maleficent forces that cause dissonant beats. If, like Pythagoras once discovered, a song that is tuned right and sounds pleasing to the ear is so because it is an undisputed truth, a harmony, then there must be some truth in harmonious and dissonant hearts.